Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's a few seconds away from four o'clock, but it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Today we'll be looking at Roundup and irradiated food, why we don't need them, with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Preparations for the 2018 referendum for independence in New Caledonia with Nick McClellan, who's a journalist and researcher. Plastic litter, the language of litter, with Neil Bloke, who's the Port Phillip Baykeeper. Silencing Palestinian and other voices. I'll be speaking to Jake Lynch, who's the director for the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University. Oceana Gold in the Philippines, Andrew Morrison from the Australian Philippines Solidarity Association. But first, it's a troublemaker, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when, despite the jokes which will be flying about, about disillusion, we astute souls know in this case the meaning... They are spelled differently, of course, is not the mental state brought on by our esteemed parliamentarians, but the act of dissolving, as big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull explained yesterday. We must dissolve evil trade unions and lazy avaricious workers. It is vital to the transition of this economy. Uh, Yes, Malcolm, uh, transitioning from what to what? Well, we are transitioning from grossly exploitative capitalism to even more grossly exploitative capitalism. Uh, So you admit filthy, rich, bloated capitalists exploit the masses. Good heavens, no, that's that's that old-fashioned class struggle nonsense we have to eradicate, indeed dissolve. No, it's the masses, especially the evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, masses who exploit. And top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin this morning explaining what the two disillusioning bills are about. One would make it difficult for criminal union bosses to keep their jobs. The other set up to keep lawless construction union and officials in line. Direct quote. Thank you, Lord Rupert, for such dispassionate objectivity and balance. Balance exemplified yesterday as we waded through the whopping sins coverage of all the things that matter, looking for its coverage of thousands and thousands marching Sunday to support evil, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Page after page of people gathering to watch lots of noise and pollution roar round Albert Park, grand pricks. Then another spread, lots of people. Oh, here it is, I said, but no, a fun run for charity, raising money to support that which our taxes are supposed to support. They probably could if it wasn't for those evil unions whose demise is essential to transition the economy. On and on, more and more critically important items, but thousands marching to support those seeking our help, many of them victims of our own invasions... Not a word. Non-news. Unimportant. Still, given the general part of the world where those seeking refuge come from, not as unimportant or relevant as Turkish people, apparently, because after yet another horrific bombing in the middle of Ankara, killing and injuring lots of innocents, 
our Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash Up the Workers, assured us our true blue Aussie ambassador, who was sitting in his car just down the road, was safe and... No true blue Aussies were among the victims and no foreign nationals were among the victims. Uh, so the dead and injured were all Turkish, Julie. Yes, thank heavens, all Turks, only Turks. Back to Malcolm and his difficulties with evil unions, his love of decency and honesty. As evil union officials have been dragged before the enforcers of capitalist law, that is, good, sensible, responsible law, charged with allegedly playing up, we come to play up which in turn confirms why independent, responsible, well, like the law, good, sensible, responsible directors must control all that lovely, lovely workers' super money because what would workers know about controlling lovely, lovely money? Uh, unless we consider that the funds run by workers outperform the funds run by good, sensible, responsible directors, but that's not a fair comparison because the latter have to make money for the banks and the big financial institutions Institutions, dual responsibilities explaining why the good, sensible, responsible directors must demand huge remuneration from the workers' lovely, lovely money for their dedication to the banks and the financial institutions. Uh, oh, and to the workers, of course. Anyway, play up. That's the name of this online gambling sports management whiz-bang state-of-the-art investment opportunity launched by that good, sensible, responsible former New South Wales big supremo and now big, big-time practitioner of what's good for all of us, Nick Grinder, the workers. See, a who's who of true blue Aussie's biggest investors and good, sensible, responsible, independent directors poured trillions into play-up because it couldn't fail. Could it? The wise investments, including a few million from our very own Malcolm, a wise investor. Unfortunately, PlayUp has hit the big corporate wall. And it turns out workers receive no pay and no entitlements like super for months and now they're owed thousands. A typical little story not worth talking about in many ways, except... A couple of years ago, Malcolm and his family converted their investment into a debt owed by the company with first call. So while play-up was sinking into the mire and workers receiving not one cent, Malcolm's investment was receiving lots of lovely, lovely money paid to his son. And now, as our big supremo copped all this money while the workers copped not a cent, PlayUp and Malcolm are saying the government is responsible for the workers' entitlements, showing they're not so ideologically hidebound to think government has no role in business at all. And given that that who's who of big investors, the very people the government says must manage workers' super funds, get their hands on all that lovely, lovely workers' money, PlayUp's demise and Malcolm's good luck show why we can't leave such matters to ignorant workers who know nothing about sensible investment. After all, Malcolm got paid and the workers didn't, a microcosm of how super should work. Although sadly, the big who's who of filthy rich investors other than Malcolm and his lot lost the lot, poor dears. 
Oh, but good news. Nick grinded the workers, and they certainly did. Nick bailed out a couple of years ago before the proverbial hit the fan or the investments hit the wall to mix our metaphors. So play-up exemplifies why the government is rushing to put that lot in charge of all that lovely, lovely workers' money. Due to really important matters like evil union officials facing serious charges like being evil union officials, Malcolm, Nick, Playup and good, sensible, responsible directors and investors joined the refugee march in not getting a look-in in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media and all but one of the Falfax Empire and, of course, not a word on those comprehensive tele-users. Suppose we could call the directors responsible. They, they weren't responsible for blowing all that money. On which one of the great Trublawazis, who knows what's good for all of us, Frank Lowey than Lowe. He knew it was good for all of us that the public purse provide billions to support his little soccer hobby, and it worked out pretty well. We got his vote. OK, just the one vote, and we probably could have got it for a few billion less, like every cent of the few billion we spent less. Now he's found a new role for the public purse. We can build all the infrastructure we need without affecting the budget. Well, let's clarify that. We can build all the infrastructure the corporate cowboys like Frank, who know what's good for us, tell us what's good for us. That is, infrastructure which, after the public purse has funded it, then turns over a neat little profit. Profit being something the public purse has no right to, and therefore... So under Frank's latest burst of public altruism, the government, the public purse, pays for it. Then the private sector, like Frank Lowy than Lowe himself, take it over, and the cost doesn't appear as a budget loss because the private sector now owns it and rakes in, as is its right, the neat little profit, which naturally must become a neat, much bigger profit because the public now enjoys the super-efficiency of the private sector and can't expect a blood job the innate goodness of the private sector. Frank just never stops sticking up great ideas for the public purse, does he? Well, the last thing Frank wants is other people's taxes being wasted on other people. A conviction put into practice by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Caring Business Class Government budget just last week, when it decided it had enough of wasting other people's taxes on other people just because those other people had a disability of some sort, slashing their benefits because the government must practice austerity, which is good for everyone, including the other people with a disability who have lost their benefits. But the positive is what they, what they lose has been picked up by the wealthy, the filthy rich who received huge tax cuts. And, well, someone had to pay for the tax cuts. And as our very own caring business class, Big Supremos, pointed out last week, and the man who told the corruption inquiry he had no idea, no idea, caring business class government big shot Arthur Sins have done us, told us this week, the only beneficiaries from tax cuts for the rich are workers. Something about the tax cuts being used to generate jobs and increase wages. Apparently the last thing the rich would do is pocket the windfall and begin their campaign for the next tax cut because the tax cut they're now paying, or now not paying, is screwing them and making the uncompetitive on the great level playing field of world's best practice. So finally, the British Chancellor 
did the disabled a favour. The disabled are just so lucky, the rich chorus, as they calculated their windfall. No disillusion for them. Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy, and you can hear more of Kevin tomorrow, 9 o'clock until 10, on the programme City Limits. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Last year, the scientific group of World Health Organization declared that Roundup, Monsanto's glyphosate-based herbicide, was likely to be causing cancer. More recently, the French-based WHO Cancer Research Division, known as IARC, launched a sweeping blow to Monsanto in their latest research findings. I'm speaking now with Bob Phelps, the director of the Genetics Network. Bob, these findings that Roundup is tainting our food supplies and polluting the world's drinking waters... What will it take to achieve a ban on Roundup within the near future? Well, I'm not sure that more evidence is really going to make the difference. It's really a public policy matter. One of the crucial things is that insurers are starting to uh, point out that uh, the community and especially workers' health and safety are very much at risk as a result of the way that we use Roundup, the most used herbicide in the world. It, of course, had a lot of public relations done on it over the last 40 years. It was Monsanto's chemical and they really misinformed people about the safety of Roundup. So we have to undo all of that misinformation that uh, people have been given over all those years and now start to get our politicians to take serious notice of the need to do something urgently about this on public health grounds. And this is worldwide? Well, it is starting to be, of course. Where um, genetically manipulated Roundup-ready or Roundup-tolerant crops have been grown so extensively in North and South America with aerial spraying and other means of applying Roundup that have not respected public health and safety, you've got whole communities affected. The World Health Organization's expert committee that reported last year that uh, Roundup is a probable human carcinogen is just one of the red flags that's got to be taken notice of. It has generated a lot more discussion, a lot more awareness, but it hasn't as yet really very much affected public policy or changed people's behaviour about using this. We see a lot of council workers, for instance, very casually spraying Roundup in local streets, parks and on school grounds without any adequate protection for themselves or the public, particularly children and animals. What's the alternative to Roundup? Well, there are a number of different options. Uh, There are other rather nasty chemicals that one could use, of course. You can cultivate the soil to control weeds, or, as some people suggest, you can simply ignore them because a weed in, say, a farming system or on a local street is simply a plant that's growing in a place where people don't like the look of it or don't like it being maybe we need to change our whole attitude to plants as well. In natural systems, people see weeds as as a terrible thing, but maybe once they've been there for so long, they need to be seen as integrated into 
native vegetation and so on. And I think there, it is time for a, a sort of a rethink or a review about our, uh, our obsession uh, about weeds. There are ways, management in particular in agriculture, of uh, ensuring that the weed burden is reduced and there are some new technologies like Harrington uh, Weed Grinder, for example, which um, when a crop is harvested takes the seed that's not the dominant crop, say the wheat or the barley or the canola, and uh, grinds up the weed seeds so that in the next season there'll be far fewer weeds than there were. And that's a technology that's now coming online for broadacre agriculture. The incredible... Brussels glyphosate sheep dip. I sent you a, a, a copy of a, an email. There's been a huge outcry against it. I don't know that specific case, but uh, yes, Europe is very much engaged in a huge public discussion and debate about uh, getting Roundup and a number of other uh, chemicals out of uh, cropping and general land management systems because of their toxicity. We were going to do the same in Australia. When the Abbott government got elected, our Agriculture Minister Barnaby Joyce very conveniently uh, knocked on the head a new program which would have reviewed all existing registrations for chemicals, and there are tens of thousands of them. Many of these chemicals were registered up to 50 years ago when the evidence was very poor about the toxicity of these chemicals. And in the absence of that um, particular review process, Australians are very much exposed not only to Roundup and its active ingredient glyphosate but to a large number of chemicals that are inadequately regulated and controlled by our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and I think one of the priorities for the next government is to revitalise that review process to send all of those chemicals back for a proper review for new evidence about their toxicity and get most of them out of our food supply and out of our environment because they are not properly regulated, they've never been properly reviewed or assessed and we need to clean up our act because the public health and safety is affected by chemicals and chemical residues in food. Who are the bodies responsible for this? Well, our federal regulators, of course, Food Stands Australia New Zealand, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, our state governments who are supposed to do the enforcement, they don't have the capacity really to do it, to make sure that uh, these things are used according to the label, because all that the federal regulators do is to require the makers of chemicals to put certain words on the label, and then really it's up to the states, and in some cases local government, to ensure that those who use these chemicals actually observe what it says on the label. Uh, there is no monitoring or enforcement, so really some people think that uh, if a chemical is good, using more of it is even better, and uh, that's just not satisfactory in this day and age when we know that the public health and safety is uh, both short-term through toxicity and in the long-term through carcinogenicity affected by things like glyphosate. Uh, we need to take seriously the impacts, particularly on children, domestic animals, on our environment generally. Uh, we can't have people without proper clothing or protection casually spraying our streets with Roundup, putting their, themselves and the public at harm's way. What concerned me years ago, and I still say it's happening now, is that the parks and gardens, who people who look after the creeks, who 
go along the creek areas and spray it. Well, that's going into the waterways. That ends it up in the in the rivers, and that ends up in the sea. Yes, you're right. <laughs> it does. And what we now know is, contrary to what Monsanto had advertised and was um, fined in several parts of the world for advertising, was that it Roundup was biodegradable and very short-lived in the environment. From the recent evidence, it's very, very clear that it is persistent, that it does survive in soils. Farmers are even now concerned that the residues of Roundup may affect the next crop. The lies, the disinformation, we just need a clear view of, of what these chemicals really mean for the users and for the people exposed and for the organisms in the environment, plants, animals and microorganisms because uh, that's our ecosystem, that's the platform for life on Earth. We're uh, doing it, in some cases, irreparable damage. Another threat to our health is irradiated food. Can you explain how food is irradiated and what foods are irradiated and why? This is another um, thing that's been quietly progressing along. You might recall that in the 1990s there was a huge resistance to food irradiation in Australia and in fact from uh, 1990 to 2000 there was a um, moratorium on the irradiation of any food in Australia. But since then uh, the moratorium was lifted. Firstly they did herbs and spices and uh, herbal infusions in around 2001 were allowed to be irradiated and since then 24 fruits and vegetables particularly tropical fruits and vegetables including such things as apples, tomatoes, uh, capsicums have been approved. They can now be exposed to the equivalent of one, uh, at least 1.5 million chest x-rays in order to control fruit fly. This is now going to be much more prevalent in our food supply because the toxic chemicals, dimethoate and phenthion, that fruits and vegetables were previously dipped in to control fruit fly, have finally been got rid of. They were toxic and had been used for about 20 years. We and others had um, kept telling the pesticides authority that they had to get rid of them, that they were um, bad for public health and safety. And uh, last year they finally agreed, yes, too toxic, yes, we have to get rid of them. But their fallback position has been that, uh, well, now we will irradiate these things instead of putting other systems and management uh, practices in place to control fruit fly, uh, particularly in northern horticulture production. What are other countries doing? Well, about 50 countries approve uh, irradiation of some foods, particularly meat, in Europe and in North America, but they all require labelling. They um, are not reviewing those labelling requirements. And the thing at the moment is in Australia that we have a requirement to label as well. So if you went into a supermarket when this new irradiation industry gets going, there should be a sign or a label on any fruits and vegetables that have been exposed to radiation energy in order to control fruit fly. However, Food Stamps Australia New Zealand is uh, now considering whether or not the continuation of the labelling is required. It appears that our governments on behalf of industry are taking the view that, well, if uh, food is irradiated and labelled, people won't want to buy it. That's not good for the food business. Therefore, our regulators are taking the view that uh, they intend to remove the labelling requirement just when this new industry is cranking up. Not satisfactory, 
the public has a right to know and how are we going to make a choice when we go into a into a food store of which fruits and vegetables are fresh and which are highly processed by being exposed to these large large amounts of radiation energy basically nuclear cooked it's a bit more than not satisfactory surely we live in a democracy and we should be told that we're going to have a radiated food well unfortunately the um the labeling of foods is a is a nightmare and a, and a um a scandal really at the moment we really don't have any proper labeling of where a food comes from let alone what's been done to it so the country of origin labeling is still unresolved it's still being argued about the government has taken it out of the food standard and is, is proposing to have a separate law which will apply a kangaroo logo with a bar graph uh, saying what percentage of the uh, ingredients in a processed food are from overseas or produced in Australia. And it's quite unsatisfactory because all of them will carry the kangaroo logo. Unless you look very, very carefully at the little bar graph, you will be misinformed. And that will be another small logo on a food label. Our food labels really are not informative. They're not, in many cases, factual. I think that um, our regulator, Food Standards, is really advocating more for industry than it is for the public interest. That is not satisfactory. They're our regulator. We want them to do a good job, a precautionary job, of regulating our foods so that they're genuinely safe and healthy. And there's another danger too, that should the TPP be ratified, the Australian government could be sued by foreign companies if it introduced or strengthened food labelling laws. Well, the government has said that, uh, that it won't be affected, but, um, for instance, uh, the TPP trade agreement does include uh, a commitment from the countries, the 12 countries involved, that they will uh, enter into serious negotiations about allowing the low-level presence of genetically manipulated, unapproved foods in uh, the international trade in food. This is a new uh, wild card as well. We don't know what levels they're talking about allowing unapproved GM foods and on what basis it would be set up, but at least the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade agreement, does ask those countries to make a commitment to talk about what they're calling low-level presence of genetically manipulated unapproved foods. Yes, I think it will spin off to other things as well, the trade agreement is really bad news for our, our health, not only from food but also from our pharmaceutical benefits scheme, for our privacy on the internet and a range of other things. And I think there's still time to stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership being signed, particularly now that we're headed for a double dissolution. Uh, we're hopeful that uh, we might be able to knock it off. And it's not travelling very well in the USA either, where uh, several candidates, including Donald Trump, have have uh, loud and clear said the trade agreement is not in the interests of the American public either. Uh, everybody is going to be ripped off if that trade agreement goes through and uh, we will certainly be having our say during this election period to try to ensure, along with many other groups in the community, that uh, it sinks without trace. So all people listening should be getting geared up and protesting against not only this issue but all the other issues that you've talked about well yes sure and uh, particularly on uh, the food irradiation one we have 
uh, a website at the moment where uh, people can go to have their say to food standards about asking Food Standards Australia to, and the ministers, the ministers who uh, comprise the Food Forum, which is federal and state and New Zealand governments, the health ministers are also asked in our message to make sure that the labels on irradiated foods continue because labelling is essential in this case. We'd like to get rid of irradiation. There are 24 approvals on fresh fruits and veggies, as I mentioned. We're not going to knock it off any time soon, but we do need that labelling to continue so that people can make informed decisions. So if people go to Food Irradiation Watch, they can certainly find the link there for this uh, web page where they can have their say to food standards and to the ministers, the health ministers, to say we want the labelling to continue, it must continue. Uh, we're entitled to know whether a food that looks fresh has actually been highly processed by being exposed to at least 1.5 million chest X-rays equivalent energy. It's not satisfactory. It's not an industry that we want. It's not going to be good for our health. And there are other ways of controlling fruit fly that are not being considered by our food authority. They've got to do a serious job of reviewing all the options and not simply default to irradiation of our food. Thanks, Bob. Many thanks. Thanks, Jan. And those web pages, Food Irradiation Watch, all one word, and the Gene Ethics Network. And that, of course, was Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. I'm speaking now to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. A referendum is due in New Caledonia late 2018. How are the pro-independence movements preparing for that? Well, this has been a long transition towards the vote on the political status of New Caledonia. Going back to the 1980s, there were armed clashes between supporters and opponents of independence and the French state. A series of political agreements came out of that period of violent conflict, particularly the Noumea Accord, which was signed in 1998 and set a 20-year transition to a final decision. We're just 30 months away, not that far, from the proposed referendum, which will determine whether New Caledonia remains part of the French Republic or whether it's an independent and sovereign country. And the independence movement goes back many decades. The uh, long-standing political party Union Caledonienne, the Caledonian Union, was founded in the 1950s. It was one of the earliest political parties in the, the Pacific, but really only took up a pro-independence stand in 1977. And that happened right across the Pacific. That was an interesting year the National Party in Vanuatu, what was then the New Hebrides, called itself the Vanuatu Party and declared a provisional government, said they wanted independence. In Tahiti, French Polynesia, Oscar Temeru set up the Polynesian Liberation Front, Front de la Liberation de la Polynesie, began to campaign for independence. So in the late 70s, a time where Australia was just ending its role as a colonial power in Papua New Guinea, this spirit of self-determination came forward. Here we are decades later... Union Caledonian has been joined by other political parties in a, a broad national liberation front known as the FLNKS, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front. And the FLNKS is a, a grouping of four political parties. They just held their congress last month, which I uh, was in New Caledonia, and uh, I met with a number of the political leaders. 
they're really gearing up for 2018 uh, for a referendum and they hope to mobilise the Indigenous Kanak population but also supporters in other ethnic communities to um, vote for for independence. Do they need more than their local people for a positive vote? Yeah, you see that over the, the generations... The indigenous population, there are Melanesian people, uh, similar to Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, and Solomons, and so on. The Kanaks, as they're known, have become a minority. They only make up about 40% of the population. New Caledonia, in a funny way, has a colonial history similar to Australia. Uh, when the French annexed it in, in 1850s, it was a penal colony, and uh, the first people there were prisoners from Europe, including political prisoners after the Paris Commune in 1871. Thousands of people were deported from France um, after the 1871 rebellion in Algeria. Kabyle rebels who were fighting against French colonialism were deported to New Caledonia on the other side of the world. So it's had that history. Then later, free settlement. And as we've seen in Australia, the, the land of indigenous people was taken, sometimes bought, more often stolen by uh, free settlers in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And then uh, there was a a boom in nickel. Jules Gagné, uh, an explorer, an archaeologist, geologist, discovered uh, uh, enormous reserves of nickel. Indeed, New Caledonia today has, some people estimate, more than 20%, 25% of the world's nickel reserves. The whole mountain range that makes up the central spine of the main island is basically strategic minerals, nickel, cobalt and other enormously valuable resources. And so there's been a mining boom. So the history of penal colony, pastoral settlement, mining boom, very much parallels the things we've seen in Australia. And as we know, the impact on Indigenous peoples from all those economic eras has enormously devastating effects. And who has the vote? Well, everyone has the vote. Um, one of the things about French colonialism is that if you're, if you're in a French territory, you have the full rights of French citizenship. That's different to the British tradition, which has always had uh, second-class citizenship. So if you live in Gibraltar, say, or the Falkland Islands or another British outpost, you don't have the full rights of British citizenship. Whereas for the French, whether you live in Tahiti or Wallace and Fortuna, New Caledonia, Réunion or other French colonies around the world... You have the right to vote for the National Assembly and the Senate, even the European Parliament. You don't have to be in that country for a certain number of years to have the vote? New Caledonia is distinct amongst the others, and that's been the breakthrough that the indigenous Kanaks, going back to 1983, said, look, we are the colonised people, we have the right to self-determination to determine our future, but we welcome the so-called victims of history. These are the descendants of the, the convicts and settlers who came here in the 19th century, the indentured labourers who were brought here from Vietnam, from Java, from other places in the early 20th century, the people who made New Caledonia their home, been born here, as I say, regardless of their ethnicity. So many years ago, in the 1980s, the Kanaks recognised that although they were the indigenous people, they recognised that through colonial settlement there were people who'd made New Caledonia their home, who didn't want to live in Paris, who didn't feel that they should be in the Northern Hemisphere. And so that uh, recognition has been part of the Kanak policy. What happened under the Numira Accord, to summarise a very complex process, was this idea of creating a New Caledonian citizenship, so distinct from French nationality. And so they brought in changes to the electoral law to try and restrict the local electorate for local institutions, their provincial assemblies, their congress in Numira and so on, just to New Caledonian citizens and not to all French nationals. 
So when I was covering the 2014 elections for their local provincial assemblies, about 23,000 people who are resident in New Caledonia, French people, couldn't vote for the provincial assemblies and the National Congress. And these are people like public servants or teachers who may have come from a two- or three-year contract. The soldiers who were deployed from France are there. And the Canucks rightly say, hang on, why should we let recent arrivals determine the future? Because not surprisingly, the French public servants, the soldiers and others who arrive generally vote against independence, seeing this as part of France. But the concession that's been made is that other New Caledonian citizens, people who may have lived there for two, three, four generations, should certainly be part of the decision about what happens next, and therefore they would have the vote in um, 2018. And the cut-off date that's been chosen is 1998, November 1998, essentially, if your parents or others were there and were registered on the electoral rolls, you would have the right to, to participate in the decision that's due basically in the second half of 2018. Well, who's benefited from the Numea Accord? Well, there's been a, a significant shift. I mean, I first went to New Caledonia in the 1980s where people were literally at war with each other. I have vivid memories of uh, arriving in Rivier Saleh one night. Um, the Kanak working-class suburb uh, in Numea has a real divide in the city. The southern suburbs are very wealthy, around Los Fatah, lots of tourism, uh, lots of nice yacht harbours for people to put their boats, luxury apartments. The working-class suburbs near the nickel smelter um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the, to the north of the peninsula um, are, are there. And we arrived in, in 1985 at a time when uh, there was literally armed conflict between supporters and opponents of independence and two white fellas getting out of the car in uh, Rivier Soleil. People pugged a shotgun out the window at us to um, just make sure we weren't about to chuck a Molotov cocktail at the house. Uh, so that was the sort of mood in the 80s. Now that's fundamentally transformed. What we've seen under the Namir Accord, this transition has been that France um, has devolved powers from Paris to the local administration, the local government in New Caledonia and have paid for the privilege. So the control, for example, over primary education transferred in 2000 over secondary education in 2012. Um, And so now the government of New Caledonia, rather than the government of France, controls education. And that means that, for example, that they've had to rewrite the history books and the geography books. So they talk about our neighbours, the Australians, rather than our neighbours, the Germans. The history books reflect that New Caledonia is a Melanesian nation, a land of settlement, certainly, but a Melanesian nation surrounded by other Melanesian nations, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, and so on. So there's a a gradual shift of responsibility. And over the period of the Namir Accords, now 17 years, uh, powers over a whole range of areas of health and education and so on have been transferred to the local government. But the state apparatus? The state apparatus, however, is still controlled by the French, and the five what they call sovereign powers will effectively be what will be discussed in the referendum. When we talk about sovereign powers, they're the the things that, as you say, make up the state apparatus. Police, courts, the military, currency, foreign affairs. Um, So those are sovereign powers that France controls to this day, although they've transferred areas over many other areas of uh, economy and uh, society, um, that France still holds those sovereign powers... There's still debate about the questioning of the referendum, but essentially the Numir Accord says that it should determine whether those sovereign powers, defence, police, courts, foreign policy, transfer to the independent nation of New Caledonia or whether 
there's some sort of other deal, and that's the debate. The anti-independence parties, not surprisingly, say we welcome greater autonomy from Paris, we'd like to run our own place, but we still want to remain within the French Republic. The independence coalition, the FLNKS, says no, we want full sovereignty, full independence to be independent republics like neighbouring countries like the Solomons or PNG and so on. And that's the battleground that we'll see over the next two years as uh, a decision has to be taken. Is there one question or a series of questions? Well, we don't know yet, and that's the debate. In 1998, the Namira Accord was created to avoid a yes-no decision, and the Canucks have a strategic problem. As I say, they only make up about 40% of the population. Overwhelmingly, Canucks support independence, but the majority of Europeans uh, and also those people who've migrated from Wallace and Futuna and Tahiti, other French colonies in the Pacific, the majority of those people are opposed to independence. And we've seen over time a gradual increase in the number of people uh, who support independence in New Caledonia's Congress. In the 2004 elections, there were 36 opponents of independence. In 2009, there were 31. Last elections in 2014, there were just 29 opponents of independence against 25 supporters of independence. So you can see that the numbers of people who are opposed to this idea of New Caledonia being independent is dropping but they still needs to make a strategic breakthrough and persuade large numbers of French people that they should give up their EU passport, that they should live in the Southern Hemisphere, and not surprisingly, many French people are reluctant to do that. The Walesians are in a difficult situation. Do they stay in New Caledonia after independence? Do they go home to their country, Wallace and Futuna, which has very little industry, very little economic opportunity? Indeed, there are more Walesians in New Caledonia than there are in Wallace. People have migrated to work in the nickel industry uh, for better education, better opportunities for the young. You know, these are decisions that the the Kanak independence movement is trying to woo supporters from other communities, European and Wallisian, to say, we live in the Southern Hemisphere. Colonialism is a relic of the 19th century, let alone the 20th century. It's time that we took responsibility for our own country. Well, let's move forward to the end of 2018. If the vote says, yes, we want independence, what will happen? There'll be some significant decisions. One problem is that because of the legacy of French colonialism, there's still a need for many people from overseas, be they French or otherwise, to work in key areas of administration. One of the shocking legacies of French colonialism has been they haven't really educated and formed a professional class to fulfil many of the functions. So, for example, there are only two Canac doctors after 160 years of French colonialism. There's one young Kanak woman who's in sixth-year medical school in France at the moment. She's going to be number three. And that's shocking when, obviously, a country, whether it's within France or independent, needs doctors. So there's a whole range of areas where an independent republic would still need support from overseas. There's also practical issues. I interviewed Paul Neotin, who's the president of New Caledonia's northern province and one of the leading members of Palika, the party of Kanak Liberation, which is the second largest pro-independence party. And I interviewed Paul Neotin about whether New Caledonia wanted an army. At the moment, the French army serves uh, uh, in New Caledonia. There's French naval warship in the harbour. Army, I saw in the latest figures from 2014, gets 36 billion Pacific francs a year from the French state. That's more than the province's and the local municipal councils get. So when everyone talks about how much money France puts into New Caledonia, yes, but a lot of it's boomerang aid and goes back. So that's a significant sum. Hundreds of millions of dollars goes to the French military every year. The obvious question is, post-independence, who would patrol New Caledonia's exclusive economic zone? They've got a million 
square kilometres of ocean and to stop illegal fishing and so on. So there's obviously questions about what sort of relationship they would have. And Neotin said, well, we need a police force, um, obviously, to, to maintain uh, the rights to stop violence in the community and the home. We may need some sort of paramilitary force, but we certainly don't want an army. We don't want to end up like Fiji, he said, referring to the coups in Fiji that we've seen since the 1980s. So the people are talking about how would you run a society after people decided that they're... Um, and what we've seen over the Numira Court period has been growing confidence as New Caledonians, both pro and anti-independence, have taken up responsibility for managing a whole series of institutions to determine, as I say, uh, rewriting the curriculum to reflect local realities, looking at public health policy that uh, is, is governed by a Pacific country rather than the health standards that you'd see in Europe to try and adapt to local realities uh, of Indigenous people's land rights language and culture and so on, which is a vital part of identity. All the sort of things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities struggle with to get Australian law, Australian systems and institutions to deal with the lived reality that they have in rural and remote Australia. Um, The same battles are fought out between the Kanaks who live uh, in the Northern and Loyalty Islands provinces and the French bureaucrats who arrive knowing nothing about Pacific culture or the history of uh, Pacific struggles. What about economic reality? Would the money dry up from France? And if it does, how are they going to run the country? Well, this is the fundamental challenge for any country. Independence is hard in this globalised capitalist world where countries are interconnected through the role of transnational corporations, through uh, the use of currencies like the euro or uh, the dollar. So it's very hard to be autonomous in that sort of integrated capitalist world. What we've seen under the Numeer Accord has been an attempt, what they talk about, economic and social rebalancing. During the 1980s and before, a lot of economic activity was in the south, around the capital Numeer and the small towns around Numeer. So the main tourist infrastructure was in the capital. The hydroelectricity scheme at Yate provided energy for the south, but very little for the north and the loyalty islands. The main nickel smelter run by Societe Le Nickel, which dates back to the early uh, 20th century, was in Numia. Um, so Numia was the real hub of economic activity. And what we've seen has been the transformation of that. Most importantly, changes in ownership of the mines and the development of two new nickel smelters, both with support from transnational corporations. So in the southern province, as well as SLN's Doniambo nickel smelter, there's a new smelter at Goro in the south, run by the Brazilian corporation Vale, which is a global multinational nickel and mining company with a terrible environmental record, both in Brazil and in, uh, in New Caledonia. And so Vale has set up operations. More importantly, in the north, uh, the northern province, through a series of holding companies and with a mining company called SMSP, has taken charge of mining industries in the north and has a major project with a mine at Coniambo and a smelter on the coast near the northern town of Kone, a massive nickel smelter, about a $7 billion project built in China and put together like a giant Meccano set, amazing piece of uh, uh, technology. And it's a joint venture between the SMSP mining company, so the Northern Provinces' um, own company, which holds 51% of the project, and the giant transnational corporation Glencore, which is a major financial and mining company that operates around the world, based in Switzerland, but who knows where its money comes from nowadays. So Glencore has 49% and the northern province has 51% of this giant Coniambo project in the north. 
That's provided enormous employment opportunities. Uh, SMSP has gone on to do deals with Korea and China for the export of low-grade ores, and uh, so it's a major operation and has provided a, a real change there. And so I think the issue of nickel is intimately tied to the political questions. You asked, can the country live without French money? Yes, if they control their core industries and determine their relationships with emerging Asian economies like Korea, Indonesia, China and others, as we are all doing, as the Australian mining industry has been forced to do. At the same time, uh, uh, a lot of the French money that comes in, over $1.5 billion a year, is not all going to benefit grassroots people. As I've said, um, um, out of, I think the transfers in 2014 were 166 billion Pacific francs, 36 billion of that went to the military. So obviously you could restructure that and uh, some of the benefits that flow to French public servants could obviously uh, be cut back. I don't think that France will walk away. For obvious reasons, France has its strategic interests in the Pacific and indeed the French government doesn't want to let go. The French government is doing everything it can to give more autonomy to New Caledonia but to keep it as a colonial possession, just as French Polynesia and Walsh and Futuna they have interests uh, in the in the region. And if the vote is no? If the vote is no, the Namira Accord has an interesting provision that could, there could be a second and even a third vote. If the vote is yes, obviously, uh, they would move towards a transition of the final sovereign powers. It may be over some time that uh, some powers might be held in partnership for two or three years as there's a transition towards um, independence. We saw that in Timor, say, where the vote in 1999, sovereignty only came in 2002. Similar sort of transition might be there. But the Numira Accord makes provision for three votes. If the first one is a no, then there's provision for other votes. And the Canucks hope by demography um, and by uh, uh, the mobilisation of people who don't normally, uh, who aren't interested in politics and don't vote, maybe 30% of the population didn't bother to vote in 2014. If that community can be mobilised, then uh, there's potential. So the Canucks say, look, we're not going anywhere. This is our land. We want our independence for the future. And it's up to you, French people, you people from Wallace, to decide whether you live in the Southern Hemisphere, whether you look up in the sky and see the Southern Cross and feel at home, or whether you're French, whether you're a European, um, and whether you want to keep voting for the European Parliament, fine, vote for it, go to Europe. <laughs> so that's the sentiment. And uh, if you want to live here, fine, live here, but let's build a country together. Let's build a common destiny, is the jargon they use. We're happy to have French people come and work here after independence, but we make the decisions. And that's the basics of, uh, of the movement for decolonisation around the world since the 20th century. Is there a problem with an emphasis on nickel because we see some other developing countries who've got a, a dependency on oil? You've only got to have the price go down and they're up the shit. And New Caledonia is up the shit at the moment um, because nickel is in crisis globally. Prices on the London Metals Exchange, which is the main uh, international market for, for nickel, nickel metal and nickel ore have tumbled since 2011 and there's a whole range of factors related to that particularly the slowing Chinese economy. China's still growing at 6 or 6 7% a year but that was down from 10 so um, there's a, a fall off of Chinese activity and the Chinese very smartly have stockpiled a whole range of strategic metals including nickel so they have a massive stockpile on the Shanghai Futures Exchange uh, with contracts locked in at low prices um, and that's dropping the price. 
And we've seen that reflected in Australia just recently, the collapse of uh, Clive Palmer's nickel operation, the Queensland Nickel Industries in uh, Townsville, reflects this problem where countries built up debt during the uh, the boom period um, and didn't you know, run down that debt uh, during the good times. So Clive Palmer was giving away Mercedes, literally, to his workers um, during the boom years. But now the collapse in nickel prices and the shrinking of international markets, particularly in Asia, has meant that uh, production has dropped. And so smelters, be it the Yabalu smelter in Townsville or the three smelters in New Caledonia, are producing nickel with production costs higher than they can get on the international market. Now, you can only go on so long producing nickel at a loss. For the government of New Caledonia, there's a terrible situation where they've had traditional contracts with Japan and Australia that have been historically the two biggest markets for the export of nickel ore. Closure temporarily until end of July of the Queensland smelter run by Clive Palmer means that 2 million tonnes exported of nickel every year is not got a contract. Maybe in July that'll come better if he, Clive Palmer can juggle his financial balls as he's been doing, uh, but uh, tell the workers in Townsville, 550 workers sacked just recently, another 270 last year, um, that everything's going to be all right. There's a level of uncertainty. And I interviewed uh, President Philippe Germain, the president of New Caledonia, and he said, look, in July it may be that Queensland Nickel starts operations again, but we don't see this as a sustainable solution. He said uh, there's a, a real concern that Australia you know, cannot guarantee to take nickel ore um, that our small miners from the east coast rely on and so we have to look at alternatives. So while I was there um, just uh, recently the government of New Caledonia issued a new nickel plan and said for the next 18 months small miners would be open to develop contracts with China for particularly the Chinese steel industry Rather than pig iron, uh, you know, pig nickel, as the case may be, which is lower-grade stuff used in alloys for pots and pans, that potentially companies for the next 18 months could sell ore to China. I mean, it's not as neat as this, but the 2 million tonnes that would normally come to Queensland will now go to China. People are open to looking for contracts. The government says that they'll consider fulfilling them. So we're seeing a massive transformation in the global industry, and the question is, who cracks first? Will it be Brazil's Vale that decides... Like last year, they lost $400 million US on the Vale smelter in the south. The year before, they lost $300 million US. You can't keep throwing money down the drain like that. Similarly, Glencore, uh, this giant Swiss transnational, has interest in mining sectors all over the world. When they inherited the, the Coniambo project, they hadn't originally been involved in creating it. Uh, other companies were. The CEO of... Um, Glencore, Ivan Glassenberg, said, we're not married to Connie Ambo, quote-unquote. They could overnight decide that they'll withdraw the funding that they put in to this massive project in the north. Now, the French government is desperately trying to make sure that that doesn't happen because the collapse of the project in the north would have enormous political implications. Here we are just a couple of years out from a referendum on whether New Caledonia stays with France or is independent. So the decisions that are being taken in Queensland, in Paris in Switzerland, in Canada, have an enormous impact on this Pacific Territory. And this is the way of the world. Uh, We look at the transition that Australia is underway from the good years of the mining boom that benefited the fat cats uh, who've lived very nicely off the rents and revenues of, uh, of Australian resources, and yet ordinary people have not benefited as much as they should from that transition. And now that the mining boom has, has lost its gloss, 
um, working people once again are being asked to pay for the social cuts, the company tax cuts that uh, this government is talking about uh, to benefit the corporate sector once again. New Caledonia is just like Australia. You're saying they are diversifying, but they're still diversifying within nickel. And this is a real problem. Uh, How do you have a balanced economy? And one of the problems is that many rural Canucks aren't involved in the wage sector. In the Loyalty Islands, for example, which are the outlying islands off the the east coast of the mainland, um, there's very little employment opportunities. People are employed by government or they're involved in farming and fishing, uh, very much a traditional lifestyle. The Loyalty Islands are 97% Kanak, Indigenous. There are relatively few people there from France and most of those are teachers or public servants and so on working in the local provincial administration. Um, the northern province is 88% Kanak. Beyond the major nickel projects, there's not a lot of resources going into agricultural production or a diverse economy that respects Kanak land ownership, creating markets for agricultural products. And so that's one of the, the big challenges. Historically, New Caledonia has been cut off from its neighbouring environment, and one of the big pushes that comes from both sides of politics, both supporters and opponents of independence, talk a lot, a lot about reintegrating New Caledonia in its regional environment. The obvious question about you know links with Australia and New Zealand, the classic when you went there in the 1980s, all the butter came from Norway rather than from New Zealand. Um, so you know New Caledonia is seen as an outpost of, of Europe. Now for Australians, we get this idea, like Australia is an outpost of Europe uh, living in the Asia-Pacific region. You know Anglo-Australians have had to struggle with this notion of you know where do we fit in our region where we're living alongside indigenous peoples in Papua New Guinea and Solomons in other parts of the world where our nearest neighbours, Indonesia and countries in Asia, are facing massive struggles about popular control of their economies. The the French in in New Caledonia, the resonances with Australian political economy are no accident. Um, It's really part of the same, uh, same system. The theft of indigenous land, the creation of industries that rip up natural resources but not a balanced economy that can make the transition into the 21st century. And New Caledonia is facing major restructuring problems. It's all happening, though, at a time where people are trying to decide whether they become an independent nation or whether they remain part of the French Republic. And that's Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. It's always great to have Nick on the program, and he's off to Fiji next. So in coming weeks we'll be hearing what he's got to say about the country there. Hands off Timor's oil. Join us on March the 24th outside DFAT Melbourne to put pressure on the Australian government. By refusing to establish permanent maritime boundaries, the Australian government is shortchanging East Timor out of billions of dollars in oil and gas revenues. Join the Timor Sea Justice Campaign March the 24th, 12.30pm, DFAT, 55 Collins Street, Melbourne. For more information, timorcjustice.com. Timor Sea Justice Campaign is a 3CR supporter. If People Powered Radio Exhibition is on now... Get along to Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and enjoy this exciting collaboration. The exhibition features recordings, technological hardware, photos, ephemera and newly commissioned artworks by local artists which frame and interpret the station's history of radical broadcasting. 
A series of live broadcasts are happening every Friday in April, direct from the exhibition space, talking sovereignty, troublemaking and music. Come and explore the politics of broadcasting, the experience of community and the station's radical history with Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and Art Space. 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, open Tuesdays to Saturdays from 11am. Exhibition finishes April 23rd. For more information, visit 3cr.org.au. Three events, and there is little doubt in my mind that there is a connection. First, the Acting Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences threatened the winding up of the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University, Australia's only university peace centre, and an advocate for the dignity and self-determination of the people of West Papua, the Tamil people of Sri Lanka and rights and prospects of the Palestinians, amongst many other areas concerning peace and conflict resolution, to downgrade it to a mini department. This would jeopardise its role in the wider peace movement and risk silencing the centre's political voice. Then the initial refusal of the Australian government to issue a visa to Ali Abudimar, the founder of Electronic Intifada and which was granted two days after a successful petition for him to speak here. Then last week, the news that Sydney University has cancelled the venue booking for Ali's speech, leading to claims that Sydney University is once again attacking free speech and the possibility of much-needed debate about the genocide of Palestinians by the apartheid state of Israel. Yesterday I spoke with the Director of the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, Associate Professor Jake Lynch, who only last year was formally cleared of anti-Semitism in a case where the university staff accused the Vice-Chancellor of aiding a witch hunt against Lynch. I first asked Jake about the study centre, which was established in 1988. Well, the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies started with something called SKIPS, which was the staff-student campaign for the introduction of peace studies. And their rationale really was that every other subject was taught in Sydney Uni except peace. So why not peace? Why shouldn't peace be added to the list? And the university authorities at the time acceded to that case, in essence, only insisting that conflict be added. So we were born as the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. You've been there for how long now? Personally, I've been here for just over nine years. Uh, I came to be the centre's director in January 2007, but I had already been teaching part-time in the postgraduate coursework programme for several years before that. Has the centre always attracted controversy from what, perhaps what we might call the right? Yes. The centre has often sought to enact and embody the traditions of peace advocacy and speaking truth to power. Uh, And, of course, um, power doesn't always like to be told the truth. So over the years, we've certainly been embroiled in our fair share of controversy on various different issues. And what actually do you do on a day-to-day basis? What do you teach students, or is it much broader than just teaching? We are at the uh, level in the university's structure of a department. 
And so we do things that the department does. So we have a postgraduate coursework program, so students come and study for a Master of Peace and Conflict Studies. And we also have a postgraduate research program, so they can come and do PhDs. In my day today, for example, we'll certainly be spending four hours teaching. Uh, Today I'm teaching students in a unit called Key Issues in Peace and Conflict Studies about themes in international peace and security. So one of the ideas we're looking at is just how it comes to be that in so many countries, such as Australia, we always seem to seek to respond to conflicts and crises by using military force. Uh, It's not something that uh, is a a necessary response, so why do we do it? So that's an example. We also do research. So my chief research interest is peace journalism. At the moment, I'm uh, looking at uh, the working lives of journalists and how far they are able to change the content of their reporting to make it more conducive to non-violent responses to conflict. So they're the functions we fulfill that most departments would also fulfill. But over and above that, CPAX has its own separate existence as a centre. So we have our own structures of governance. Uh, We have our own responsibilities to advocacy and community outreach. And it's those really that are most obviously under threat in the scheme to downgrade our status to that of a so-called mini department. Now, there have been threats against you personally as well. In the course of attempting to provide leadership for the community at large on issues of peace with justice, of course, the centre has come in for its share of criticism, as indeed I have myself. One of the issues on which we have taken action is the academic boycott of Israel. That's because we consider the University of Sydney's links with Israeli higher education to be inadvertently normalising and legitimising Israel's policy of occupation of Palestinian territory. So we want to accept ourselves from that and we would like those links to be revoked. A few years ago, I was approached by an Israeli academic in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which um, is linked with Sydney through a funded fellowship scheme uh, to sponsor an application he was making, uh, which I declined to do on the basis of my and the center's policy of boycott. What happened after that was that I was taken to the federal court by a legal NGO from Israel called Shurat Hadin in an attempt to have my policy and the sense of policy uh, declared to be in breach of Australia's Racial Discrimination Act. Uh, Happily, we were able to refute that allegation uh, and emerge intact from the court case Um, still with our policy in place. But it was um, obviously, as as you can imagine, pretty stressful time. And if things had gone in a certain way, if things had all gone wrong, it could have ended up uh, costing me an enormous sum of money. And more recently, the disturbance during the talk by Richard Kemp? Yes, it's odd, isn't it, that uh, these um, speakers who get um, toured around Australia by um, pro-Israel groups um, never seem to be from those sections of um, Israeli public opinion which um, want to uh, negotiate with the Palestinians or want to insist on Israel's observance of human rights for all the the people it deals with. No, no, they're nearly always from the hard militaristic right of Israeli politics, which which is odd because um, I'm 100% sure that doesn't actually represent the views of certainly not all members of the Australian Jewish community, for example. But, but nonetheless, these, these pro-Israel groups seem to want to bring these, these speakers over who want to um, make excuses or try to minimise or try to deny Israel's breaches of international humanitarian law. This uh, retired British Colonel Richard Kemp was case in point. 
while we were in his public meeting, it was interrupted by a group of students who took to the stage and chanted slogans using a megaphone. Security guards began to pick them up bodily and bundle them out in what I felt was a, a dangerous fashion, uh, and therefore I intervened. And sequence of events that followed led to all sorts of smears and hysterical allegations of anti-Semitism, all of which were again refuted, because the moment those allegations come up against the tests of logical argument and evidence, they immediately fall away. And that's because there's absolutely no basis for them whatsoever. But it causes you a lot of stress, though. It was a stressful episode. There's, there's, no, there's no getting away from that. And also, it kind of, in, in a way, interferes with the work we have to do. You know, the work we have to do is to get on with preparing our students, sending out messages for peace into the community at large, to engage critically with issues of conflict and peace, such as those, but by no means confined to those uh, in the Israel-Palestine conflict, you know, having to fend off these kind of um, attacks with, in that case, the connivance of the university authorities does tend to interfere with that and, and gobble up far more than its fair share of attention. You're threatened with a downgrade to a mini-department. What would that mean for you? At the moment, what we have as a centre, we have a, a, a CPACS council, uh, and that has elected members, and it's the CPACS council uh, which has, for example, decided to adopt motions calling for the academic boycott of Israel and for these particular ties with Israeli universities to be revoked. It's a kind of political base, and we have a political voice. Not, uh, I must uh, hasten to add, not uh, that we seek to take sides in conflict or become uh, people who advocate for particular outcomes to conflict, but we do advocate for peace with justice, and that sometimes means taking action to set a boundary uh, around uh, abuse, because otherwise one can uh, end up legitimizing and enabling the abuse, and, and I think that's certainly the case with the links between the University of Sydney and, and these Israeli universities. So the CPAC Council has that role. Also, we have special projects in the centre, such as the West Papua project, for example, which has um, highlighted the aspirations of the West Papuan people for peace with justice. And the project is, is run by volunteers, although they are um, considerable experts in their own right, and they've exerted quite a lot of influence behind the scenes in regional diplomacy over the issues concerning West Papua. But the point is that they report to the CPAX Council. Their annual report, their annual statements appear in our annual reports. So the special projects we run in the centre, which fulfil our role in the wider community, arise organically from our structure of governance. And if you take away the structure of governance, then you jeopardise those special projects as well. And is the Sydney Peace Prize also jeopardised? The Sydney Peace Prize is a bit separate because it's run by the Sydney Peace Foundation and the Sydney Peace Foundation was an initiative of CPACs but it's a foundation of the university so it has its uh, own separate executive council so there's no uh, immediate proximate effect on the Sydney Peace Prize from this particular proposed administrative switch. However, I would say that the centre gave rise to the foundation because of the energy and creativity that is unleashed and enabled by our unique structure and the way we do things. Uh, and therefore, that is the energy that is um, called into question if uh, we're now downgraded to the status of a so-called mini-department. How do you gauge the level of support for your campaign to not be downgraded? I think I can say that today we will receive... A supportive statement 
signed by all seven Greens members of the New South Wales Parliament. We've had a lot of supportive letters from colleagues in the peace world and in universities around the world that have gone to the Dean, the Acting Dean of Arts, whose proposal this is, pointing out the need for CPAC to retain its status as a centre. So, you know, the campaign is certainly up and running. You know, the university would have been left in no doubt as to the scrutiny from the community at large uh, it is under when it uh, is, is attempting to, in my view, mess with CPACs. What about the staff at Sydney Uni? Well, I think there's, there's, a, there's a good deal of sympathy for us among the staff. For some reason, over the summer, um, the university's senior management seems to have been gripped by a very strong idea that it needs to make a lot of organisational changes with minimal consultation. So, for example, there are proposals to merge faculties, proposals to um, cut courses or to merge degrees. Suddenly, you know, we're in an environment where where a very great many organisational changes are in the air and, and everybody's really kind of rubbing their eyes and thinking, well, you know, where did they come from? And we were never consulted on them and we don't like them. There's now the beginning of a campaign to get the university's management to rethink these proposals and it's backed by the staff union, the NTEU, as well as both student unions. That's the Student Representative Council and SUPRA, which is for postgraduate students. And the beginning of that campaign really was a rally held at the university last week and speakers from the staff union and the student union both specifically mention CPACs as an example of an unwelcome change which is being proposed with no consultation uh, which should be urgently uh, rethought. And I should add that the proposal to downgrade us to a mini-department has never been agreed uh, by anybody at CPACs or even discussed with anybody at CPACs. It's purely unilateral. It's, it's the actions of a university management which seems to suddenly be very keen on trying to make changes without proper consultation with anybody. What are you asking people outside of Sydney who would support your work to do? Well, at the moment I'm just asking people to write to the acting dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, that's Professor Barbara Kane, C-A-I-N-E, either by snail mail or by email, and um, her email address is quite easily findable through the university's website, just pointing out some of these aspects and uh, requesting that she rescind the proposal to downgrade CPACs and think again and become aware um, of the store uh, by the centre which many people set in the community at large. I hope uh, that will suffice. I mean, one argument that's been put to me just very recently, I mean, one of the frustrations with this is, is the goalposts appear to keep shifting. I'm never quite sure what lies behind this. But one argument that's been put is that we don't fulfil the requirements of a centre in the university because we don't lead colleagues in multidisciplinary endeavours of teaching and research themed on peace. Well, I, I was staggered when I heard that because, of course, it's, it's exactly for that that we are well known and we have a, a long and continuing record of doing that. I was in a position to refute that argument comprehensively in a message that I sent to the acting dean over a week ago I'm really in the dark as to why this proposal is still on the table, because I think it, it would be damaging if implemented. I think the arguments for it are without foundation. The longer the hiatus goes on, the more people in the community at large will conclude, and many do conclude, that what's really going on here is a political attack on CPACs, an attempt to silence us. Finally, the decision by the university to cancel the lecture by Ali Abenina. 
that was a bit puzzling, frankly. You can't link that at all? I should say that the meeting is going ahead, which is on a separate booking. What remains mysterious is the haste with which the university apparently revoked the original booking on grounds that, in their view, Mr Abunima didn't have a visa. I note that uh, the, the university spokesperson was asked specifically by the reporter from the Australian, uh, Ian Higgins, to state whether the university makes a habit of checking whether visiting speakers have visas and, as it were, um, standing ready to cancel room bookings unless they can be satisfied of that. Overseas speakers come to the university all the time, so I'd be very surprised uh, if that, that was actually a routine practice. I'd be surprised if the university didn't basically leave it in the responsibility of the speaker themselves to ensure they have the requisite visa. That's a surprise. It can't be dissociated from the general political atmosphere here in Australia where Australia, in its official diplomatic positioning, stands way out on the extreme right pro-Israeli fringe of world political opinion. But in that, it's, it's quite at odds with the centre of gravity of Australian public opinion. We are being extremely ill-represented by our government on this, as on so many other issues. Australia has a virtual mania for doing the bidding of the right of Israeli politics. Uh, and and the the delay to the issuance of the visa to Ali Abu Nima, whatever the official excuses from Canberra, is plainly linked to Australia's outrageous partisan stance on the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is completely at odds with where Australians want it to be. Do you find that you're also being attacked by the the mainstream media? I would be very careful to uh, disaggregate uh, among the mainstream media. I do think that I have met personally many situations in the recent past where I have been reminded of the valuable watchdog role of the mainstream media in holding institutions to account and by institutions I certainly include the University of Sydney because the University of Sydney in its dealings with me personally has I think behaved in a very unaccountable and improper fashion and that's often been exposed by coverage in the mainstream media. That's a valuable role the mainstream media have played. On the other hand, I think the mainstream media sometimes are too ready to uh, listen and pay undue regard to ill-informed voices who adopt partisan criticisms of somebody like CPACs when we try to put out a position in the public sphere which is not to their liking. And that was Professor... Associate Professor Jake Lynch, who's the Director of the Peace and Conflict Studies Department at the Sydney University. If you'd like to voice your concerns, the Professor is Barbara Kane, C-A-I-N-E, at Sydney University. You can look that up and ask her to rescind the proposal to close down the department and downgrade it. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You could be listening on your computer, 3cr.org.au, streaming for a week. You could be podcasting it and listening to it at your leisure, 3cr.org.au also. Or you could be listening on your old radio, 3CR, 8.55am. If you have a digital, it's 8.55am. 3CR, that's us. It's not 8.55am, it's just 3CR if it's digital. And the time coming up to 18 minutes past 5 o'clock.
Shirley Hood debuts at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in her new show, Rock the Boat. Clever, cheeky, charming and challenging, Shirley is Australia's number one Aboriginal female comedian. Ring that bell, sound that siren, tap those sticks and get ready to laugh out loud. Shirley Hood in Rock the Boat. Visit the Comedy Festival website for details, comedyfestival.com.au, a 3CR supporter. Rock the boat, don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat, I don't take the boat Continuing the interview with Neil Blake, the Port Phillip Baykeeper, and the topic, litter, the language of litter. And the importance of involving young people in a campaigns like this. Yeah, well, that's um, because they are Because they are big consumers of takeaway foods and things like that. They are, and also they're, they're very good at communicating So with social media, etc. So if they understand the problem and they're part of the solution, then uh, I think they could be a real key to actually bringing about that kind of change. Now, there's something like 25% of the Victorian population are aged between 15 and 25. Almost voting age all right in there. Change is brought about really by political pressure and public sentiment, you know. So if, if there is an informed group of young people who are communicating well what uh, the, the message is, then governments will actually adopt policies that are going to be sensible and look for, look for the future. So we need that education in the home and we need it in the schools? Yep, uh, wherever, it, around the sports grounds or the p- clubs, all of that sort of stuff. And a lot of it, I think, is, is local councils too because you'll say, well, you've got a sporting ground there, why don't you put a rubbish bin in? Oh, well, yeah, we haven't got the, the manpower to come along and clean out rubbish bins. Well, that's what I'm saying about yeah. the language of litter. You know, it's just we're just talking about rubbish bins here, aren't we? Mm-hmm. We really need to see it in a totally different light. There is a bigger issue that we're trying to address here, and it's not just about what manpower you might happen to have. The topic needs to be uh, lifted, elevated to the seriousness that it warrants. So that's what I mean. You need to involve local government as well and the state government as well? Yeah, all layers of government. And on that topic, um, the federal government did actually have and is underway at the moment an inquiry into marine plastic pollution. The submissions were called for uh, late last year and I think they closed sometime in, in October. There were over 200 submissions from community government agencies, uh, etc., to that inquiry, and only two of them were from local government. And local government across Australia is responsible for managing litter on streets. None of them are interested in marine plastic pollution. Essentially, the reason is because once it washes down the drain, it passes out of the, beyond their borders, so they don't have to worry about it. Local government, in particular, does need to actually... Uh, focus much more on on the consequences of, of litter escaping. Give it the attention it deserves. You've been around the bay for a good number of years now. Do you see the changes with that extra litter? Not just a washed up on the beach, but the number of seabirds, babies not developing. Is it uh, obvious? Well, it's not so obvious around Port Phillip Bay, but, you know, there are... And again, you do see uh, birds that are entangled and uh, so the marine response unit are doing good work in, in that sort of area. But uh, once the entanglements occur, though, it's, it's unlikely that the animal's actually going to be uh, 
rehabilitated unless you catch it in time. And uh, so it's all a matter of timing. <laughs> in that sense, has been a continuing influx of litter, despite the numerous campaigns that have been ongoing and the fantastic work that, you know, Clean Up Australia has been doing over the years and Keep Australia Beautiful, all those well-meaning intentioned organisations that have put good arguments forward, but it's still just not washing with the general public, you know, So, and also, dare I say it, with government agencies who are still talking about the topic of litter, but without actually really ramping up the, the significance of what the environmental effects are. And then, of course, there's the packaging industry who's right at the, the top of the, the, the chain, as you say. They're playing a, an interesting role in the whole process and I think uh, that's, again, where the attention of the plastics and packaging needs to be brought to the fore because although they say they're advocating for recycling, etc., and and good user behaviour, often those arguments are uh, not very forceful. You know, For example, I've seen on one fast food takeaway hamburger box that a message to dispose of thoughtfully or responsibly... And it's actually printed on the bottom of the box. Now, <laughs> they're doing the right thing, aren't they? Making sure that their customers are aware of their responsibility. I mean, how cynical is that? And then a couple of years ago, there was the campaign by, I think it was Safeway. If you've got less than so many items, we won't give you a plastic bag. We're trying to cut back. That all went. Yeah, well, that's right. And they, they have an argument that, you know, uh, they can't be responsible for the behaviour of their customers but they can definitely influence them and and one way would be just to say all right well we won't give away plastic bags and then of course it is a personal decision how you dispose of your plastics that's right but again getting back to the original discussion though unless we can actually quantify how many plastic bags are actually escaping it's hard to mount a strong argument and therefore we need very targeted litter audit methods that actually itemise those items that are actually damaging to the environment and that are subject to campaigns to get them banned because if we don't have that specific information, it just waters down the whole the whole case. I would like to say that uh, you know, if there are any young people out there who have got a burning passion to do something and just get to learn about uh, what lives in, in their urban environment, particularly around uh, Port Phillip Bay, um, to get in touch with us at the Port Phillip Echo Centre because we'll be having regular activities and that means probably two a week, including uh, some weekends where we'll be doing um, beach monitoring works and also revegetating the St Kilda breakwater to improve the habitat for not only the penguins but also other bird species that might actually be in the area. And, of course, you are going out into schools as well. Yeah, we get out to schools and... Uh, Again, for the focus on young people, they are the future. I know for a fact that many of them are very concerned about environmental issues and we need to give them an opportunity to shape the future. And that's Neil Blake, who is part of the Port Phillip Eco Centre and is also the Port Phillip Baykeeper and he's also Captain Trash. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. 
Last week, retired Bishop Hilton Deacon spoke about the impact of mining, particular Oceania Gold in El Salvador. Today, the focus is Oceania Gold in the Philippines, and I'm speaking with Andrew Morrison, who's a member of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. Andrew has a long association with the people of the Philippines, reaching back 20 years. 1996, I went to the Philippines on a volunteer placement with the Australian Volunteers Abroad Program. And was that your choice to go to the Philippines, or was it chosen for you? A little bit of both. So with the AVA program, they offer you places, and if you knock them back, then you have to wait for the next place to come along. Sort of I had some connection with Vietnam before, and I was hoping that something would come up in Vietnam, but it didn't. So I took what was offered to me in the Philippines, and I don't regret it. It was a, a great experience and a fantastic organisation I got to work for there. And what did you know about the politics and history of the Philippines before you went? Uh, not a huge amount. Of course, everyone had heard of Marcos, but I did study up a little bit in advance. I learned a great deal while I was there because I actually I studied development studies while I was doing my placement, and I did a lot of reading, obviously enough, I suppose, about the Philippines while I was there. Who were you working for or with? Yeah, there's an organisation called the National Confederation of Cooperatives. It's like a, a peak body that represents cooperatives throughout the Philippines. By 1999, which is the time that I finished up there, they represented 1,700 roughly cooperatives throughout the Philippines. That's something we don't have here in Australia. We do have cooperatives. I guess credit unions are maybe the best example. We've got the farmers' dairy cooperatives. I guess in the Philippines it's more vibrant and probably more important. One of the main things that co-ops do is provide, I guess, finance options. Typically, people can't afford to take loans or aren't able to take loans from banks. Even their options to do savings haven't been that great. One of the main benefits that cooperatives provide in the Philippines is a way that people can save money and also a way that people can borrow money. So I guess it comes under the general heading of microfinance. I'd imagine at that time it wouldn't have been terribly popular with the powers that be. By the time that I arrived, it wasn't all that controversial, but NATCO, the organisation that I worked for, it crystallised and was galvanised by the experience of having to support cooperatives under Marcos. So I think the co-op movement in the Philippines dates back, I think, to the 1950s. I guess in the 60s and mostly in the 70s, Marcos tried to gain control of co-ops and the formation of NATCO and the strength of NATCO is partly a, a response to Marcos's efforts to take control of the co-ops in the Philippines. And what was your role within the organisation? I guess I had a general IT consulting role. It was pretty broad, so I did things ranging from setting up their email and internet connection to looking at point-of-sale systems for supermarkets that cooperatives had. Probably my biggest project there was trying to find an accounting system that would work for all of NatCo's cooperatives. Now, they were very keen on using data to promote their cause and, and they, they really did a great job of that in a number of cases. And one of the concerns was that there was a perception and a view that co-ops were for wealthy people or they weren't organisations that helped the poor, but they were rather tax dodgers for the rich. And, and so powerful interests in the Philippines were using those kind of arguments against 
the co-op movement and through the data that NatCo was able to pull together, they were able to show, look, these are the average savings of your typical co-op member and show very clearly that co-op members are people who are struggling, who need microfinance. So they were able to successfully argue for tax benefits for co-ops. Were you able to travel widely within the Philippines during those years to just to get an idea of how people lived, apart from people in the main cities? I did. I, mean, I, I was able to take some holidays. I was able to travel through work through this project where I was looking at accounting systems, so I got to visit a number of different co-ops throughout the Philippines to get an understanding of what their needs were for accounting systems. But I, I guess I learned the most through the friends I made in Manila. You know, I lived and worked in Manila. My friends who I work with, and many of them lived in so-called squatter settlements. So, yeah, like I was working there as a, as a volunteer, a so-called volunteer, my allowance was well on par with some of the, the higher-paid people that I work with. And you've got people working in, in the kitchen who are really struggling to find decent accommodation. And a couple of them that I knew lived in a squatter settlement down by a river, which would flood every year. Every year when the river flooded, they had to move all their possessions to second-storey flats where people people lived, so to speak. Really hard life for even people who had regular employment in Manila. But, but I also got to see the other side of that, going to, to visit my friends in, in these places. So really vibrant, warm community, so very difficult material conditions. But I don't think I've ever seen such a positive, vibrant community as I saw in those water settlements. Did you hear much about repression from the government, from the, the military in those years? I didn't hear that much at the time. The group that I was involved with were more focused on doing what they could to help people financially, economically. The cooperative movement, I guess, in general, and, and NATCO as a leading representative body, didn't engage in some of the more confronting political issues that I guess learned about since then. You came home and you applied for a job with Oxfam. I got a job looking after their database. It's essentially their fundraising database. I'd call that boring but important because Oxfam survives to a large extent on community support income donations from their supporters that flowed through that database. I was interested in the more exciting, glamorous, if you like, side of the, the work that Oxfam do, their international development work. And I did have a job for a couple of years uh, looking after their um, Gujarat earthquake response program. Did you keep up your connections with the Filipino people through yeah, Oxfam? I, I, I did. As soon as I got back from the Philippines, I got involved with a group called the Centre for Philippine Concerns Australia. I did volunteer work with them for a few years. I can't remember exactly how long it was. Uh, and that organisation was primarily concerned with the welfare of Filipino women in particular who had migrated to Australia from the Philippines. Many of the women who did migrate at, at that time came on fiancé or spouse visas. So that was, I guess, the main concern there they found themselves victims of domestic violence obviously cut it cut off from their family and friends in the philippines but also isolated in, in australia and not with, with not many connections telling statistic from that time that the domestic homicide victimization rate of filipino australian women 
was six times higher than that same rate amongst the general population. Disproportionate number of women who were migrating to Australia were being murdered by their partners. We don't hear about it now. Does that mean that women aren't coming from the Philippines now or what's happened? The Centre for Philippine Concerns Australia and, and other groups that were involved in the time, so I think, at, sorry, at the time, so the groups that, like you know, Gabriela Australia and Migrante uh, also involved in campaigns to deal with this. Um, but they were able to advocate successfully for, for legal changes. That meant that uh, when women did come to Australia under these circumstances, they had legal recourse if, if they were victims of domestic violence or I forget the details, but essentially they were not under threat of being deported if they brought claims against their partner. There was a, a great campaign that brought about a number of changes to immigration law. Uh, it did include providing more information to people in the Philippines before they immigrated, thing, things like that. So it wasn't so much that the women stopped immigrating under those circumstances, but that they were much better supported as a result of the campaign by the Centre for Philippine Concerns Australia and, and others. Did you also get involved with groups supporting people suffering human rights abuses in the Philippines? Yeah, so that, that came later. 2003, a group of people came together and formed the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association. When we first formed, we didn't have any specific agenda. We just said that, look, we're a group of Filipino Australians and non-Filipino Australians and we want to tackle issues that are of concern to both Australians and Filipinos. And the focus back then, and I think it has con the focus has continued to be issues in the Philippines, and yes, there are largely concerns with human rights abuses that are committed in the Philippines. The biggest issue that, that we had to deal with it fairly early on was a killing spree, I suppose, is, is that the easiest way to describe it by the Arroyo government where I think over a period of five years more than 800 people were murdered for expressing their political opinions and essentially opinions that were opposed to that particular government. At its height, two people were being killed each week on average. So PASA got involved. There's a, there's a campaign called the Stop the Killings campaign that was led by the human rights, the Philippine Human Rights Organisation, Karapatan. Thousands of organisations, I'm, I'm sure, internationally around the world contributed to, to this campaign, which eventually forced the government of the Philippines to take action to, to stop the killings. Who was doing the killings? With the armed forces of the Philippines and associated paramilitary groups. And there were two investigations that this, the Stop the Killings campaign essentially forced. Well, one was forced. The other was a, a UN investigation, which uh, I guess was partly in response to the to awareness being raised. But the uh, Philippine government was forced to commission an investigation, uh, which uh, was called the Melo Commission, and their report clearly identified the armed forces of the Philippines as being heavily involved in committing the killings. The UN report I think, was even more forthright in identifying the armed forces of the Philippines as being involved in, and th there was a particular general who was named General Palparan as being I guess, very 
important in, in, in leading this campaign of killings. And of course, as you said, there's mercenary groups as well and private armies as well as the government armies. That's right. A very dangerous place for people who put their head up. That's absolutely the case. Is the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association still in existence? It, it is, yes. Still going strong. What are and your main issues now? Still got a, a few issues on, on the boil, but what we're mostly focused on at the moment uh, is uh, mining in the Philippines. We're one of a number of members of the Australian national campaign on mining in the Philippines. I guess we're one of two groups that have put that campaign together and, and are leading that campaign. I don't uh, think many people actually realise the enormity of large-scale mining in the Philippines. Most things in, in the Philippines, the level of awareness in Australia is, is pretty low. The mind boggles at, at the, um, the failure of the Australian media to to report on, on these things. The two mines that, that we've been focused on, one is not yet a mine, it's a proposed mine in Mindanao, attempts to start mining in, in that area, it's called Tampakan in, in Mindanao, has been going on for more than, I think it's close to 20 years, a long time now. There's been a lot of local resistance there and so far mining hasn't commenced in that area but yeah, terrible human rights abuses have occurred in that area and, and are very much associated with the deployment of the armed forces of the Philippines around that area and, and the paramilitary groups, the CAFCUs as they're called. Terrible human rights abuses have been committed. There had been an Australian connection down there, so there was there were Australian companies doing uh, exploration and taking steps to, to set up a mine. So one of those was a company called Indofil, and another was a subsidiary of Extrata called Glencore Extrata. But recently, both of those companies have sold all of their interests. Although that's the, the mine where the biggest human rights abuses are occurring, there's no longer an Australian connection, so it's not something that the Australian National Campaign on Mining in the Philippines can easily tackle. But there's another mine in the north of the, the Philippines in an area called Didipio uh, that's owned and run by an Australian company based in Melbourne called Oceana Gold, and, and that's now what we're, we're focusing on. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. I'm Jane Bartlett, and I'm speaking with... Andrew Morrison, who's a member of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. Can you explain the problems of that mine over the years it's been operating? In a nutshell, it's only been operating since 2013, but the Oceana Gold, or as it then was called, Climax Mining, so it's been a merger, but essentially the, the leadership and many of the staff remain unchanged but they were first granted the right to explore and mine back in 1999 and between 1999 and 2013 they've engaged in a range of what you might call dirty tricks things that they've been able to get away get away with under philippine law some of the things that that have occurred down in, in that in the dpo are clearly illegal such as the two cases that come to mind, the worst of which is a disappearance. 
that occurred in in 2013. So an anti-mining activist by the name of uh, Brian Eper was arrested by the Philippine National Police. Uh, he hasn't been seen since. Earlier on, there was uh, another anti-mining activist was murdered a little bit further from this particular area. So those two, it's not easy to establish a direct connection to this mining operation, but clearly it's something that establishes a climate of fear. We can easily join the dots. Uh, There was a specific incident that that I'm aware of, I'm sure there have been many more, where one of the residents of DDPO, his name's Eduardo Licayo, was tending his virtual patch, which happens to be on on property that that is part of the, the mining area, and he was beaten up by armed guards and detained and then later charged, not only with trespass, but with attempted homicide, which is a ridiculous trumped-up charge because at the time he was, he, he had a, a, I guess, a Filipino size, it's called a bolo, to clear the land that he was working on. How many people have lost their land over this and been forced off their land? I don't know the numbers, but essentially the whole community, all, all of the residents of, of the DPO have been more or less displaced. You know, what I can tell you more about rather than uh, the numbers is the kind of process that the residents of DDPO have had to face. You know, there has been, since 1999, strong resistance against the establishment of this mine. But community opinion has also been divided, and that's something that the involvement of Oceana Gold from the very beginning has exacerbated and, and played on. You know, part of what I would call the dirty tricks is the way that Oceana Gold was able to employ and offer various different incentives to the people who were pro-mining and essentially achieve a kind of divide and conquer result. In the early days, a reasonable proportion of community in DDPA thought that mining might be something that would help them. But the, the way that Oceana Gold then went about acquiring the land for the mine really changed that. They used a legal instrument called a surface rights acquisition process. Well, essentially they, they forcibly acquired the land that they needed and, and that's, that's, I guess, the term that's used by Oxfam in there. I've got a, Oxfam has written a really good case report on, on this. That process, the surface rights acquisition process, it was led by a couple of lawyers that, that the mining company engaged and those were lawyers who were known to have had success in <laughs> forcibly acquiring land, for want of a better term, elsewhere. What these lawyers did first, they approached landholders individually and made them a quite a low offer for the land. If the landholder refused that offer, then they were threatened with legal action. And, and often in, in approaches to landholders, representatives of the mining company were accompanied by armed guards and or Philippine National Police. And I guess what Australian audiences need to understand is that a visit from the Philippine National Police is not like a visit from Victoria Police. If the Philippine National Police arrive at your door, you're straight away afraid. And I mentioned that case earlier of Brian Epa, who was arrested by the Philippine National Police and hasn't been seen since. So there was intimidation as part of this process. If the landholder still holds out after threats of legal action and intimidation, then there's the lawyers who are representing the mining company could then apply to a, a tribunal uh, which, under Philippine lawyers, has the power then to give the mining company access to the land and the, the residents concerned lose access 
to the land. One of the the really nasty ways that Oceana Gold gained access to the land on which they're now mining. What's been the environmental impact of this mine? The environmental impact has been terrible. The river is terribly polluted below the Oceana Gold mine in the Dibio, below the Tailings Dam. It's called increased turbidity, so the water that you can see is brown with silt and whatever other pollutants are coming from the mining operation. And one of those pollutants that you can't see is, is copper. The levels of copper below the mine are much, much higher than what they are above the mine. And well, so it has a big impact on, on health and, and livelihood. So locals have complained of skin diseases. They say that there's no more fish in the river. They can no longer use that water to irrigate and their, their, their crops. And they've already lost a lot of access to land. What access they do have is no longer grows crops as well as the way it used to. There's also a lot of, a lot of dust pollution from the mine. Uh, residents in the area do complain of higher rates of respiratory illness and noise pollution. So there's people who live nearby the mine, and that's most of the residents of Didipio. This mine operates 24-7, and it's a noisy operation. I've got a couple of quotes here. This is from a, a fact-finding mission in 2013 that, I guess, encapsulate the experience since, since the mine started operating. This is one resident said after the mine had been established, the mine is here to stay. The government allowed this to happen. It has destroyed our farms and mountains. What else is there to do? Another resident talked about the uh, impacts of the mining operation and said, the river is brown. We used to draw water from the river and catch plenty of fish. But today there are no more fishes to catch. The water smells bad. Even our rice no longer grows the way it used to. I think those two quotes, in essence, captured the experience that the residents of the DPO have been through. They've, they've resisted, but now the miners there, they feel that there's not a great deal that they can do to, to stop it, and it's having a terrible impact on their lives. So there are no environmental laws to protect people against mines like this? I don't know about the environmental laws. What I have a better awareness of are the, the laws and the processes that relate to the dispossession of this land, but certainly it's easy to see from the experience in this example that if there are any environmental laws, they're not being enforced. What about support for the people in these communities from within the Philippines itself, maybe from the churches, maybe from unions? There are church groups that are not actively involved that I'm aware in Didipio, but the Catholic Church does get involved in cases like this. And one of the anti-mining activists that was murdered in 2012 was a member of the Catholic Church. There's another church that's, I guess, a little bit more progressive, Uniting Church of Christ in the Philippines. Yeah, a lot of their members have been murdered and tortured for positions that they've taken supporting local communities. There's various issues around the Philippines. But in the DPO, I'm not aware of a huge amount of church involvement, although I do know that the UCCP has worked together to some extent with the United Church here in Australia to put these issues on the agenda, and that is related to the DPO. I guess those are works in progress still, and one of the members of the Australian National Campaign on Mining in the Philippines is the United Church, which is great news for the campaign.
What does the campaign do on a monthly basis? I guess it's been a fairly slow process for us to pull together a national coalition. It goes back a couple of years now. But so far, I guess we've just been organising, getting more people involved, working out our strategy. So we've now got a pretty clear strategy, which is to end destructive large-scale mining in, in the Philippines. It's the goal. It's quite simple. We're not opposed to mining that, that you would call sustainable. So that would be mining that not only did not damage the environment, but had benefit to the communities where those mining operations occurred. So far as I'm aware, there's no such thing in the Philippines at the moment. We're taking action to raise awareness. We're working with partners in the Philippines. One of the responses to a range of problems with mining for a long time in the Philippines has been the introduction of a, a new bill called the People's Mining Act, um, which is a response to the current legal framework which really not only allows these kind of terrible human rights abuses to occur and also the terrible environmental impacts, it really encourages foreign investment, establishment of, of mining operations without any real regard for the interests of local communities that are affected by the mining operations. Is it true that the government of the Philippines doesn't get a lot of royalties from these mines? Yes, a number of ways that mining companies can avoid paying tax. And one of those is through the legal framework. The key one there is what I know as FTAA, so that's the kind of agreement that Oceana Gold has with the government of the Philippines. Uh, I think it stands for um, Foreign Technical Assistance Agreement, and that provides for a foreign company to operate a mine with 100% foreign ownership in the Philippines. So there are, I guess, tax holidays under those kind of agreements. The Philippine Mining Act, I think it's 1995, the current Mining Act has various provisions to support these kind of tax holidays. At the same time, Oceana Gold is supposed to be paid local taxes to the local government and to the provincial government, and they have found legal means to avoid paying those taxes as well as having the tax holiday that they've already been given under the Philippine Mining Act and the um, FTAA. Now, you're part of a national campaign on mining in the Philippines. There are other countries as well, NGOs in other countries, who are also working with the people in the Philippines. They did have a, a national conference on mining where yeah, groups from, as you say, all over the world participated. Once a month, there was a demonstration here in Melbourne and I imagine there might be demonstrations in other cities as well against Oceana Gold. The one in Melbourne is the only one that I know about and that is, I guess, a campaign that's being led by Kevin Bracken with the support of the Maritime Union of Australia. A path has been involved in it from the early days because of what Oceana Gold are doing in the, in the Philippines. So there's two concerns, I guess, being addressed through those rallies it's the harm that is being done in Didibio in the Philippines and the harm that's been done in um, El Salvador. Oceana Gold has been pursuing the government of El Salvador. The government of El Salvador are doing is protecting their precious resources, protecting the environment and acting in, in the interests of their people by saying to Oceana Gold we're not going to allow you to go ahead with mining operations in El Salvador that is quite clear will have a terrible impact on the environment and, and, and particularly the precious water resources of that country. And Oceana Gold has taken advantage of an investor-state dispute settlement clause in a free trade agreement to be able to take
government of, of El Salvador for some huge amount of money. Clearly uh, outrageous. The government and the people of El Salvador can ill afford to have money taken off them by a greedy mining company. And also can ill afford to have dirty mines in their country as well. That's right, yes. Exactly why the government of El Salvador has said no to Oceana Gold and now they're, they're being attacked by Oceana Gold. If people are concerned about the issue, what can they do, Andrew? To support ANCOM, the Australian National Campaign on Mining in the Philippines. Certainly, uh, if you're in Melbourne, turn up at the offices of Oceana Gold at the last Friday of every month, between 12 and 1pm, in front of the offices of Oceana Gold. It's in Collins Street, between Elizabeth Street and uh, Queen. Also, get in touch with PASA. PASA has regular meetings. The first Friday of every month at Trades Hall in the EVAT room. So anyone's welcome to come to those meetings. They start at 6.30 the first Friday of every month at Trades Hall. You can get in touch with PASA. It's PASA underscore Melbourne at yahoo.com.au and I'll spell that out. P-A-S-A underscore Melbourne at yahoo.com. Look, anyone who's listening, please feel free to, to definitely come down to the protests at Oceana Gold. Last Friday of every month, first Friday's parcel meetings. Hopefully we can get Oceana Gold to clean up their acts both in El Salvador and in the Philippines. And I can see no reason why a mining company in Australia should not do the right thing and still be able to make a profit for their shareholders. What the people in the Dibio need, I can't imagine it would be so expensive that it would send Oceana Gold broke and all they want is, is to have a healthy environment to live in and to, and to be free from harassment. Surely the same applies with El Salvador, the, the money is that um, Oceana Gold are, are trying to seek through legal means. I can't imagine it, that, they, that that company depends on that money for their survival. The other issue is that companies like Oceana Gold couldn't get away with the practices that they're employing in the Philippines, El Salvador, other developing countries, if they had those mines in Australia. Absolutely, yes. Uh, Jim Askew has claimed, he made assertions that the pollution in the river was the result of small-scale mining that doesn't stack up because it's clearly the pollution is below the Oceana Gold mine. And, and one of the things he said was that that they are doing more than what is required to clean up that water. So what he's referring to there is that they might be slightly exceeding what the Philippine regulation requires them to do, but they would never, ever get away with it in Australia. And nor would they get away with having their armed guards beat up people for trespassing on their land and bring trumped-up charges against them. There's no way that a company would get away with in Australia are occurring in the Philippines. And you'll be listening to Andrew Morrison from PASA, Philippines Australia Support Association. If you'd like to get in touch with them, it's P-A-S-A underscore Melbourne, the whole word, at yahoo.com. So that's P-A-S-A underscore Melbourne at yahoo.com. The demonstration outside Oceana Gold last Friday of each month won't be this month because it's Easter but it will be the following last Friday in the month. And I'm sure on this program you'll be hearing more about that. Their offices is between Elizabeth and Queen Street and the demonstration between 12 and 1pm. And if you'd like to be part of PASA, 
first Friday of the month, 6.30 at the Everett Room in Trades Hall. That's about it for me. I'll be gone in about a minute, so I'll say goodbye now and I'll be back next week at four. Bye for now.